0: Welcome back. I'm Mark.
1: And I'm Bethan. Hi. (laughs) So awkward. I just didn't know what to say. Um,
0: In part one, uh, which hopefully you've just listened to, if you've not listened to it, what on earth are you doing? You need to go straight back, listen to that before you listen to part two. Uh, So in part one, uh, Bethan talked about Becky. Bethan.
1: (laughs) Who the fuck is Becky?
0: Yeah. Bethan talked about Briefly, really, about the Yorkshire Ripper and um, the crimes that he committed. And uh, we kind of took the episode of, of, well, we took part one right up to the Yorkshire Ripper being caught. And um, part two is really focusing on Wearside Jack, the hoaxer that derailed the police's investigation so much. That and also their own complete fucking ineptitude.
1: Yes. So the author of the letters was nicknamed Side Jack due to his accent. And the police were now faced with the possibility that as well as being a hoaxer, he could be a killer too because the murder of Joan Harrison was still at large. The police needed to begin a new investigation into this hoaxer. Once it was known that Wearside Jack was not the Yorkshire Ripper, a lot of the criteria used for eliminating a suspect was no longer valid. Alibis and opportunities to commit the murders were no longer important eliminating factors. The age factor born between 1924 and 1959 and even physical ability to commit murder were also no longer valid points of elimination. Only voice, handwriting and B blood group secretor evidence were still valid. But obviously these could have been disguised or at least an attempt made to disguise them. So, the Department of Linguistics and Phonetics at Glasgow University found that Wearside Jack suffered two speech defects, one being a distinctive pronunciation of the letter S, and the other being a hidden stammer, so he had most likely undergone speech therapy training. The police approached every speech therapist in the north of England, but most couldn't help based on the grounds of medical ethics.
0: Even though this was a crime? Yeah. So I find that weird, because I've heard that before.
1: I think if you went to someone and you said, we have evidence that your client or patient, this person has done this for this reason, I think at that point you would have to give them information. But if it's just a very vague thing and you have had no suspicions, I don't think you're expected to.
0: That does make sense, actually. And I suppose in order for the police to get a warrant, they've got to have quite a lot of evidence already or really solid grounds for suspicion which they wouldn't necessarily have had this was more like a speculative inquiry wasn't it
1: yeah and you're potentially asking someone to give you the names and information of tens or hundreds of their clients and patients I think that's a big deal so yeah
0: and we know that the police force would not have coped with thousands of names being thrown into the ring no
1: The press published theories galore about the true identity of Whirlside Jack. So suggestions were that he was Peter Sutcliffe's accomplice. There were also thoughts that he could have been a police officer. There was an investigation started at the beginning of 1999, which was led by Patrick Lavelle and the Sunderland Echo newspaper. This investigation lasted six months and culminated in June 1999 with newspaper articles in the paper, the release of a book, and a 30-minute television documentary called The Hoaxer. The main point of the investigation was, naturally, to find The Hoaxer, and after their initial investigation, eight names of possible new suspects were actually forwarded to the West Yorkshire Police. Following the news articles, the book, and the documentary's releases, another four possible suspects' names were passed on to the police. So they were able to do quite a deep dive in a real good investigation. But in September 1999, West Yorkshire police announced that they would not reopen this inquiry into Wearside Jack. A police spokesman said, After much consideration, it has been decided that there will be no further action by the force into following up the names provided as to the possible identity of the hoaxer. But they were given more hints and prompted to continue as the years passed by. On February the 11th in the year 2000, the Lancashire Evening Post reported on a letter handed over to Preston Police, which claimed a man named John should be investigated. So he was described as living in the Avonham area at the time of the killing, he frequented the Brunswick Arms Hotel, he drove a big blue van, had loads of tools, which suggested he was possibly a manual worker, and the letter said that he would sleep in his van He had a chest condition and that he might have strong connections to both Preston and Manchester. So there was no suggestion that the man had links to Wearside or the North East. They didn't say that he was specifically the killer of Joan Harrison, but that the police should look into him and that they didn't think it was a hoax. Loads of people came forward about this potential John. Some more information was that he was attractive with long brown curly hair, blue eyes and wore jeans. But it was also stated he had a gap in the front in his front teeth. And we mentioned the gap in the front teeth in part one. The reason that this was quite a big thing with the Yorkshire Ripper case is that Sutcliffe had bitten some of his victims and they had a cast made of his teeth and basically checked imprints of other people or suspects' teeth against this cast. So it's almost as if they're starting to kind of get things quite crossed over with this. Does the guy who wrote the letters need to have had a van? Well, no, because he's not the Yorkshire yeah. Ripper.
0: Yet, unless they were very much kind of looking to see if he was responsible for that other murder.
1: And this is it. They were, they still would have had to have looked into the other murder and potentially murders because Peter Sutcliffe didn't necessarily kill everybody. So, yeah.
0: So he, as far as the police were concerned, uh, we aside, Jack could have been responsible for Joan Harrison's murder.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: And that's where his fascination came from. And then... Peter Sutcliffe almost took over from where he left off, and that's why he got obsessed with him and started taunting the police. So there, there were were real connections there. I I think I can see it. Yeah, potentially,
1: definitely. And the police continued to investigate. And in May two thousand, it was reported that Detective Superintendent Graham Gooch, one of Lancashire's top detectives, would be re-examining the unsolved case and would look at relaunching the investigation into the murder of Joan Harrison. He would be carrying out a full-scale review of evidence, and if he determined that there were substantial new leads, he could order an instant room and a new investigation started. The sunderland Echo investigation had gathered handwriting in sealed envelopes from two of the suspects. The sealed envelopes were the forensic evidence given to Preston Police to build a DNA profile to be compared against the profile of the murderer of Joan Harrison. But the police didn't look into this any further. Of five suspects, one was considered by the Sunderland Echo investigation to be a potential prime suspect. So he was a former soldier linked to Wearside and potentially the murderer of Joan Harrison in 10 out of 12 ways. He apparently sounded like the voice, had a lisp, he had the same blood group as the hoaxer and the J in the Jack the Ripper hoax signature appeared identical to the suspect's J in his first name. So the Sunderland investigation team even travelled to his home and attempted, but unfortunately failed, to record his voice at his front door and over the phone. So they were really going hard on this guy, this former soldier. They really thought he was prime suspect.
0: But again, if you think of planning a murder and getting away with it, that is um, that would be very much in the capability of a soldier. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like they're trained to yeah. work and think in a particular way. They're very smart. Um, so so I suppose maybe that was just an added uh, characteristic that, that sent them down his path.
1: Yeah, potentially. And in June 2001, there was a television programme called Real Crime, The Hunt for Wearside Jack, which went through various theories, gave updates as they could on these, And it discussed the continuing investigations. And they also did this revolutionary thing where they digitally aged the tape voice in an attempt to make it sound like it might do at that time. It was the first time that this had ever been tried, which I thought was amazing.
0: That is because we've seen photo fits and photos of people like Madeline McCann, for example. We've seen new photo fits produced where they've aged her from a real photo uh, to show us what she would look like now. But yeah, I've never heard of... Uh, experts managing to to do it with voices that is really really interesting
1: yeah so it was almost what would it have been like 20 years afterwards so they kind of like here's how it would have sounded 20 years later and the case remained in the press and on the tv it was mentioned every couple of years and the people investigating just didn't want to give up looking into it and whilst the police were not i guess officially hunting the hoaxer they obviously couldn't ignore when evidence was just placed in their lap And one such piece of evidence was DNA taken from a man who was arrested for being drunk and disorderly in 2001. His DNA had been matched to the DNA from the seal on the envelope of one of the letters that had been licked. Detective Chief Superintendent Chris Gregg, who worked on some of the Ripper murders as a young officer, established the West Yorkshire Forces Homicide and Major Inquiry Team in 2004 and he decided to include this in a re-examination of cold cases. The letters were nowhere to be found. The envelopes had been reporting missing as far back as 1999.
0: Uh, Why am I not surprised?
1: I know. So they were first noticed as missing in 1999 when a request for them to test for DNA was made um, during the making of a documentary called Manhunt, The Search for the Yorkshire Ripper. The original hoax letters and cassette tape had also gone missing. But luckily, with Superintendent Greg requesting that these were found, someone did manage to dig them out, and he was able to start getting comparisons set up again in 2004. On October the 15th, 2005, it was reported that a suspect had been arrested, and a West Yorkshire police spokesman stated, ''Officers from West Yorkshire this afternoon travelled to the Sunderland area where they arrested a 49-year-old local man on suspicion of attempting to pervert the course of justice.'' This relates to the hoax letters and tape that were sent to the police during the Yorkshire Ripper murder investigation. He is currently being transported to a West Yorkshire police station for interview. And the fact that the guy was a 49-year-old man meant that he would have been in his early 20s at the time of sending the first letter back in March 1978. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about one of this week's sponsors, The suspect was John Humble. His DNA was actually taken in 2001 after an arrest for being drunk and disorderly, but it was not until 2005 that the samples were matched. There isn't a lot reported about Humble online. Apparently he had good grades at school though, and he gained a few qualifications before leaving school, but he never really went on to do much. He had limited periods of employment, which included a bricklaying apprenticeship for three years, six months in a hospital laundry, And a short period spent working as a security guard. He had a conviction for burglary and theft in 1973, and then for assaulting a police officer in 1975. He had kicked an off duty policeman in the head at Sunderland's Locarno ballroom. In 1990, after a six week relationship, Humble married a woman with two children. In the early years of the marriage, he was said to be a good stepfather for her children, but he soon became abusive to her and he was then convicted of common assault, which led to the couple's separation around 1999. At that point, he returned to the Ford estate to live with his brother and he lived there with him from 2002 onwards. Described as an unemployed labourer at the time of his arrest in 2005, Humble and his brother that he lived with were so drunk that the police were required to wait almost a day before he could be interviewed. And he was in shock when he was revived, being told, you're now in police custody.
0: God, can you imagine that? One, can you imagine kind of coming round from a drunken stupor, realising that it wasn't a dream, you've been arrested and you're going to be interviewed, like the shock of it. Um, But being that drunk that it takes 24 hours to kind of... Um, have, make any sense of anything. That, that was like you, Bethan, before you had Bella.
1: Oh my God, I knew something was going to
0: Bethan would come into work and I'd have to rearrange any, oh. any meetings for her for 24 hours' time just so she could sober up.
1: Shut up, Mark. <laughs> just fuck off, Mark. You know, actually,
0: to be honest, I, you, you were always well-behaved, but we weren't all, were we?
1: I can think of one person who... Perhaps was not well behaved, but we won't mention their name.
0: No, no, definitely not. Not for legal reasons.
1: (laughs) At times during the police interviews, Humble seemed to be quite ashamed of what he had done, referring to the acts as evil and saying he deserved to be imprisoned and he admitted responsibility for the letters and the cassette. Whilst his legal team pushed in vain for a lesser charge of wasting police time, he was charged on four counts of perverting the course of justice. After his arrest, he told police, I regret it, especially them lasses who have died. The coppers were useless. I thought I was doing them a favour because it intensified the hunt then, didn't it? And he later said, The case was getting on my nerves. It was on the bloody telly all the time, but I shouldn't have done it. I know that because it's evil. He was never able to really explain his motive at the time, even to his family. He told the police he was probably drunk when he posted the letters and the tape and that he had become fascinated with the 19th century murderer known as Jack the Ripper. When he was interviewed after his arrest in October 2005 and asked why he'd sent the hoaxes, he replied, I was getting bored and on the dole and I was probably drunk when I wrote them. The inquiry was getting on my nerves, it was always on the telly, so I thought I'd boost it up a bit. And he stated, I didn't expect it to turn out like it did. I panicked when all the coppers were all over Castletown. And he said of the letters, I changed the handwriting a bit and made it slant just to disguise it. And I sent the letter to the mirror for the publicity and notoriety for me, but I didn't want to get caught. And he also stated, I did have respect for George Oldfield, but you could see him getting older by the day. He had all that worry on his back. And he also said, I didn't realise at the time what a serious thing it was. I think I deserve to go to jail for it, writing those letters. I think I deserve to go to jail for at least two years. So he'd kind of decided to do it just to try and almost like push the police to work harder. And in his drunken state, he had some sort of logic there. But then it just went too far.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's what he says. We We don't know. That's definitely... Um, the truth but I, I feel that it actually is I do think that um maybe there were there were motives around progressing the investigation in the right way and it just went completely off track and And what started out as a small hoax that he thought probably wouldn't gain any traction, then just snowballed and got out of control. And I know it sounds like I'm sticking up for him. I'm really not, because what he did is appalling. But there is a tiny bit of sympathy from me that maybe he just didn't quite realise the repercussions his actions would have.
1: Yeah, and I completely agree with you. I think that what he's saying here is true. And when he talks about having some respect for George Oldfield, he, he must I think he did, and I will go on to in a bit more detail about some of the other things behind what he did, but I genuinely think he thought he was doing something that was going to help, or at least almost embarrass the police a little bit, like, you still haven't caught me, do your job better say. So. Yeah,
0: because a lot, a lot of it was a lot of his letters and the tape recordings were taunting the police and I suppose you could see them from the angle that that, that would potentially encourage the police to do a better job and to find the Yorkshire Ripper um, and I, I also think it's quite interesting that he says, yeah, I deserve to go to jail for this. Um, I know his name's humble but there is there is um, a level of humility there that he kind of totally accepts that what he did was was wrong. And even though that wasn't necessarily his intention, he understands that the consequences of his actions were so severe that he needs to be punished for it. And he is absolutely almost wanting to cleanse his own conscience and guilt by being punished. He's asking for it, isn't
1: he? Yeah, exactly. So people have since kind of tried to determine what prompted him to write these letters. So he was apparently Motivated by a wish for notoriety, he had a hatred of the police and a fixation on the Jack the Ripper Whitechapel murders in late 19th century London. So his preoccupation with these murders or the Jack the Ripper case um, really influenced the writing of the hoax letters. So not just that he signed off as Jack the Ripper, but some passages in his letters were paraphrased from those 19th century letters. And he had been imprisoned for three months in a young offenders institution for assaulting that off-duty police officer. Humble sister has said that she believes his experiences there provoked a real hatred of the police. So, incarcerated at the County Durham Detention Centre, Medamsley, in 1975, after his probation officer informed he'd only get a fine, Humble was given numerous beatings. And years later, an inquiry found that the most prolific sex predator since Jimmy Savile had been working there at the time the center's cook, Neville Husband, who abused at least 300 vulnerable young men during the wider scandal of assaults lasting from the 1960s to the closure of the centre in 1988. During his reign of terror, over 1,600 offenders, aged from between 17 to 21, were victims of physical or sexual assault and even torture. Humble sister said that he told her... He had been abused there and she told the press John wanted to get his own back for what he felt the police did to him, but he went about it completely the wrong way. And she admitted her brother went too far when he made that hoax tape.
0: That is, that's pretty damning for me. I think that, I think that really is his true motivation for for doing what he did because yeah you know he'd obviously committed a crime in 1975 he'd kicked that policeman which he absolutely should not have done he believed he was going to get a fine but ended up going to prison and then was subsequently possibly quite horrifically sexually assaulted and abused by that guy in prison and yeah he would have absolutely blamed he would have blamed the officer that he assaulted because that officer was off duty so he wouldn't have known that he was a police officer presumably and because he was a police officer uh, the the CPS would have come down on him and that's why he would have gone to prison so I, I totally get this I get that he would have blamed the police officer that he actually attacked and then also the force for prosecuting him or encouraging the CPS's prosecution of him and then all, all subsequent things that happened to him in prison he would have laid the blame firmly at the police's door so that's really interesting that's some summarises for me his true motivation in all of this
1: yeah I really think so and he was never completely open about what had happened to him but he said he had been abused there and so his sister has said you know whatever happened to him that was his motivation but he did go too far
0: totally went too far but again there is a there is a small amount of me that um, has some empathy for him with regard to what would have happened to him in prison in the 70s um and and just he's just one of those that lived on the fringes of society did a bricklaying apprenticeship worked as a builder for a bit but on the whole was unemployed with no purpose in life and uh, obliterating his senses through alcohol and because probably he'd been horrifically assaulted in prison and was trying to bury that so i don't know if i'm getting too deep into it but i genuinely do feel a level of of sympathy and empathy for him
1: yeah He was remanded on the 20th of October 2005. Um, He confirmed his name, date of birth and residence, and there was no plea entered by the defendant. Um, He remanded in custody and no application for bail was made. He was then tried at Leeds Crown Court on the 9th of January 2006, initially pleading not guilty, but he admitted to being Wearside Jack on the 23rd of February. And on the 20th of March 2006, he changed his plea to guilty on four counts of perverting the course of justice what I will say about Humble is that before Sutcliffe was arrested he actually did phone the police station anonymously twice to indicate that they had been hoaxed because he felt so guilty for misleading the investigation his calls were then discounted as hoaxes themselves so oh, he appears to have really yeah he really did try
0: But also the police were happy to kind of discount his calls as hoaxes, but the actual true hoax in all of this, they totally believed.
1: Exactly. And so again, I'm not, I can't defend him. What he did was a real dick move, but he did try and call twice and say they're hoaxes.
0: And I don't think it's necessarily about defending him. It's, It's just, it really confirms that there was a level of guilt there, doesn't it? that he then tried to kind of stop this snowball from rolling down the hill and gathering even more momentum.
1: And it went too far. He thought he was just going to make the police... Maybe he just thought, I'll embarrass the police. Maybe he thought, I'll get them to keep looking at this case in a bit more detail. Maybe he just wanted to kind of like push them to keep working on it. I don't know. But it went too far and he tried to stop it.
0: Yeah, he tried to backtrack on it, didn't he?
1: Exactly. So he suffered with this guilt for the rest of his life. He was driven to drink and he lived what has been described as an inadequate life. In November 79, he had attempted to take his own life after trying to phone by jumping off the 90-foot bridge spanning the River Weir. But instead of dying, he landed on a boat. He was rescued by the police and spent three months in a hospital as a result of his injuries and he underwent psychiatric treatment. According to his defence at trial, he had attempted suicide on many other occasions too. So he told the police, I phoned in to tell them it was a hoax, but they didn't take any notice. I phoned in twice, I tried to tell them it was a hoax. And when he was asked why, he said, because I felt guilty. He referred to the murder of Barbara Leach, Sutcliffe's 11th victim, and he said, because that lass, one of the lasses, was murdered, I blamed myself for it. That's why I phoned in, but they took no notice and another two got killed. On the 21st of March 2006, Humble was sentenced to eight years in prison. Before sentencing, his barrister told the court that Humble had not intended to help Peter Sutcliffe remain free and whilst he may have wanted to embarrass the police, he did not for one moment think that the police would react to the extent that they did and it wasn't until he heard his voice being broadcast over the television that he became so aware and at this point he was so frightened that he called two police incident rooms to tell them it was a fake His barrister said he could have walked into any police station and handed himself in and he accepts that but his answer for what it is worth is that he did not have the bottle and his barrister went on to say it wasn't safe to say that Sutcliffe would have been caught a day earlier than he was if Humble hadn't sent the hoax letters and tape but the judge did counter this and asked wasn't one of the basis on which Sutcliffe was discounted by the police that he didn't have a sentinent accent but Humble's barrister repeated back and stated, the police have information from numerous surviving victims of Sutcliffe who described their attacker as having a West Yorkshire accent. They didn't have to listen to this tape. They didn't have to follow it so intensely.
0: No, because they certainly didn't listen to Peter Sutcliffe's true victims and what they had to say. So I, I don't think you can... Um get John Humble to be a scapegoat for West Yorkshire's appalling investigation into Peter Sutcliffe's crimes, you just can't do that. It, it, it absolutely, as they said, may not have been the case that had um, John Humble produced those tapes and letters, uh, or had he not done that, that the police would have found Peter Sutcliffe before he went on to murder again, it absolutely might still have, have happened.
1: But you can't say for sure, that his letters and his tapes did this. And and that's I f- that's what I kind of really felt for him, was he already had that guilt that he'd done this. And now he's got people in court telling him as well. The
0: The only interesting thing from, from what you've just gone through there is his barrister to saying he could have actually gone into a police station. So rather than just phoning and saying those letters and the tape recordings are a hoax he could have actually backed that up and said it was me that did them and I I don't think it's really much of an excuse to say that he just didn't have the bottle to admit it if he was really truly guilty and remorseful for what he'd done then he would have handed himself over I think and said look it was definitely me and I can prove that these hoaxes were me and I'm truly sorry for that but he almost wanted to have his cake and eat it he wanted to kind of stop the snowball rolling down the hill and get the police back on track but he also wanted to preserve and protect his own innocence so he is a fundamentally bad guy but I definitely do still have a lot of empathy for him.
1: Whereas I disagree with you because I just think how difficult and how terrifying it would have been to even imagine going into the police station and saying I did this not knowing what could be the consequences for you so I think not having the bottle genuinely is a good enough answer it is not an excuse and he still should have done it if like you said he had enough remorse but I can understand that he actually tried the way that he thought was best didn't get through to them so he thought I'll just kill myself then
0: I do get that's interesting actually yeah I think the fact that he then attempted suicide immediately after calling um, for a second time to he he was obviously starting to realise that the police weren't listening to him and like you say yeah uh, did, did Bottle maybe go into the station and proving that it was him and just thought I'm just going to end this I'm going to end the turmoil and pain and kill myself
1: so the judge was very much like like you kind of whilst understood what had happened and that sort of thing he he very much said to him that whilst his l- actions of sending letters and the tapes couldn't it couldn't be said that they caused or directly led the murder to the murders of the three women and the attacks on the other two women it did move the focus of the police investigation and he said that he arrogantly set out to send the investigation away from the path of the true killer you did this with an indifference to the potentially fatal consequences which is breathtaking and to the judge it set him in the most serious category of offending so i thought that was re- he, the judge went really hard on him He said um, that there would have been a better chance of these women not being attacked had the letter and tapes not been sent. Cliff himself might have been given a higher priority. And basically, like, it's unforgivable that you failed to put the record straight when you realised the damage you were doing. So, yeah, I I do get it. And I don't like to have too much sympathy for Humble because what he did was awful. But I felt like this judge was, like, really savage to him.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think the judge has taken the direction that basically, yeah, had it not been for humble, these women's lives would have been saved because the police would have caught Sutcliffe. I would have maybe taken the direction that had it not been for humble, in the police, these women's lives may have been saved. We will never know whether those hoax letters were sent or not about what ultimately would have happened and whether Peter Sutcliffe would have been caught earlier or not. The hoaxes might not have been sent to the police and the mirror and he still might have gotten away. Even though they were perhaps more closely able to identify who was potentially responsible for these murders, he might have still been able to carry on and and kill.
1: Well, we see time after time things that the police were investigating and he sat there right in front of them and they still didn't notice. So yeah, it is so hard to say for definite.
0: Yeah, it was like it was almost when he when he did finally get caught, it was almost like dumb luck.
1: Yeah, it really really was. So Judge Jones sentenced John Humble to 6 years for each of the 3 letters he sent and 8 years for the tape, and all sentences were to run concurrently. In 2006, Humble launched an appeal against his sentence which was rejected. And Peter Sutcliffe wrote to John Humble, accusing him of having blood on his hands for the last three murders. Oh, my God. What a prick. What an absolute wanker. The
0: absolute temerity of that. How Mm -hmm. fucking dare he? How dare he say that? Other people can say it like the judge, like the press and like a lot of you listening. Um, But absolutely no, Peter Sutcliffe has no right to say that to him.
1: Yeah. After being freed in 2009 after serving four years of his sentence, Humble changed his name to John Samuel Anderson and he shaved off his beard. He lived at a bail hostel in Newcastle and then moved to nearby South Shields where he kept his identity secret from his neighbours. But he was then featured on a documentary on the Ripper case on TV in 2019 and his neighbours worked out who he was. On the 30th of July 2019, he was found dead by his sister. He had died from heart failure and the effects of his alcoholism.
0: Oh, I, d- I didn't know that. And I I had a bad feeling through the last half of part two that this is where we were headed. And that, that makes me even sadder. I just don't think he
1: ever really, like, ever kind of stopped with the drinking. I think that was his health from that point on just was was nothing to him, it sounds I d- I like. I don't
0: think he ever got over his guilt, and I think he was no. trying to bury that through alcohol, yeah, I possibly. I think
1: so too. I did think it was really important to note that whilst the police did investigate this, there was nothing to suggest that John Humble had any connection to the murder of Joan Harrison. So he wrote the letters and sent the tape. He is not a murderer. Um, The police have no indication that he did anything other than those crimes. So I thought that was really important to kind of mention of him.
0: Absolutely. And I don't think it would have been in his remit to to do it. I don't think he would have been capable of actually committing murder.
1: So on November the 16th in 2010, it was reported that Lancashire Police's cold case review team were investigating the murder of Joan Harrison and they were potentially close to a major breakthrough on the case. A sample believed to have been taken off Joan Harrison's body was sent for further DNA examination So, Peter Sutcliffe and John Humble had been eliminated from this inquiry, and in 2011, Lancashire Constabulary announced that the advances in DNA technology had revealed sufficient evidence that would have led to the murder charge against a man who was called Christopher Smith. So, Christopher Smith was a father of six, had been married three times, and it's believed that Smith used at least 14 aliases, including this final identity, mainly committing petty thefts during his late teens until the murder of Joan Harrison's. And then his crimes became more violent sexual. It resulted in a jail term in 1981 of two years and nine months for the attempted rape of, in Manchester of a 17-year-old girl. Two years later, he received a suspended sentence for the manslaughter of his first wife, Violet, after he was cleared of murder. He argued she fell onto a knife that he had held during an argument. And his second wife has since told detectives that when she was seven months pregnant, Smith threw her out of a window. So in 2008, Christopher Smith, after being arrested for drunk driving, had a DNA swab taken. He died six days later from a terminal illness. A note was left by Smith the day before he died, which seemed to possibly omit the murder. So it said, "'To whoever it concerns, "'I would like to put the record straight. "'I can't go on with the guilt. "'I have lived with it for over 20 years.' I am truly sorry for all the pain I caused to anyone. Please believe me when I say I'm sorry. I love my grandkids and my daughter. I cannot go back to prison anymore. Please, God, help my family who I worship. I have been out of trouble for over 20 years, so please, God, help me. I am so sorry. God, forgive me. I love you all forever. So the detective chief superintendent who was in charge of this said to the police, my view of the note is that it comes tantalizingly close to a full admission, He is clearly remorseful for something he's done in his past, something he had not been to prison for. The police didn't think it was referring to his first wife's death or his other convictions, and his family told the police that he was a paranoid man who was fearful of a knock on the door from the police. Christopher Smith's path had crossed with Joan Harrison's by pure chance, so a friend of his told the police that he had been serving a sentence at HMP Preston around the time of Joan Harrison's murder, Joan went to a certain hostel that then Christopher Smith lived in. Um, So basically, the head of CPS stated, in considering cases, the CPS has to decide if there's a realistic prospect of conviction. And so what they basically said was that, is that if Christopher Smith was alive, there would have been sufficient evidence to go forward with the prosecution. Obviously, they can't judge the outcome of a trial, but they would have absolutely charged him. So that's who they think killed Joan Harrison, but he had died um, like years before, like two or something years before.
0: I I think that's pretty conclusive, though, I think. Yeah, they were really
1: convinced. Yeah,
0: their paths had crossed. Um, he's pretty much admitted to it in, in the letter that he writes the day before he dies. It's like a classic deathbed confession. Yeah. And the CPS would have pr- progressed that case to court. But I, I get it. There's absolutely no point in doing that because Christopher Smith or whatever he was calling himself was dead. So, so yeah, I think that's, um, that's actually a really nice way to end this episode.
1: I wanted to make sure that her, um, her murder did actually. Get listened about and investigated,
0: and also there is real closure for her family and people that, yeah. that would have known Joan. Um, we we know who killed her, and also we know that wasn't Peter Sutcliffe. We know that it wasn't Humble,
1: and I think that was important for me because he wasn't a murderer. What he did was a like really really shitty thing, and absolutely was a criminal, but he wasn't a murderer. So
0: it's um yeah it's it really has taken part two took me on a a different emotional path that I than I thought it would take me on because I really ended up feeling for Humble and uh, I could really palpably feel the remorse that he felt. And I find it really quite tragic that he died only a year ago from alcoholism, which I genuinely think would have been uh, you know, would have been something that he suffered with all of his life because he was trying to bury this guilt. So so I really do feel for him. It's made me feel quite sad, actually.
1: I also wondered, because the TV documentary came out and then people started re- to kind of realise who he was, Um, whether it was an inadvertent or purposeful suicide attempt as well, that he just drank and drank and drank himself into this point where he then died from the effects, whether he knew subconsciously or consciously that that would kill him, and he he almost finally finally did that,
0: yeah, absolutely could have been possible, maybe at this point he just thought, you know I've served my sentence, I've I've paid my dues, I've moved on with my life, I've changed my name, I've changed my appearance, and still people are talking about we aside Jack and people are identifying me and he must have felt backed into a corner and and quite trapped. And this is a guy that has struggled with his mental health throughout his entire life. He self medicated that with alcohol. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he just thought I've just had enough. I can't escape what I did and we've all done things wrong. Not to the extent that he did, but We've all done done wrong things in our lives and hopefully we're able to forgive ourselves. And he had paid his penalty and deserved a fresh start and he couldn't have it. And that that really does make me sad for him. I really do uh, feel sad for him and I never thought I would have done.
1: Well, there we go. Um, Let us know your thoughts, guys. Let us know what your kind of thoughts at the end of this are and how you feel about everything. And get in touch in all the usual ways.
0: Yeah, particularly how you feel about John Humble. Um, We know he was guilty of of writing those letters and producing the hoax recording. But do you really think that uh, what he did threw the police off track and resulted in in several more murders? Um, Or do you think that he he started with good intentions and it just spiralled out of his control?
1: Thanks for listening, guys. We'll be back next week.
0: With another two-parter, I believe.
1: I think so. Yeah, we'll see you then. See you then. Bye. Bye.